Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. Does anybody know? I mean, I'm not. This isn't a quiz. I, <laughs> it's a question. I don't know the answer to this question. How April got to be National Poetry Month? I mean, is it because of T.S. Eliot? Because it strikes me that would be a reason for it not to be National Poetry Month. In other words, if I were at the meeting to pick National Poetry Month, and I would say, "Well, we you can't be April. Right? <laughs> we have to take that one off the table. We've got 11 months left to work with." But I, I don't. I'm not consulted on these kinds of decisions, but it is National Poetry Month. And I should say, I don't know how evident it is. I think it's evident to some people based on the calls, on the call I got about this on one of our all-call shows, that I I do love poetry and care very much about it. And my my theory about it, which you'll probably hear me say five times today until you can't stand it anymore, is the problem with poetry is it's not ambient enough. It's not interwoven enough into our lives. It should be around us all the time. Uh, and, you know, and it shouldn't be segregated. It shouldn't, poetry shouldn't be a thing you go off and have or do or read or listen to in a very, way that's very separate from life. I don't think it always has been as separate from life as it sometimes seems to be. So I'll tell you two more things, and then I swear to God I'll bring the guests in because we have really great poets here to talk about this instead of, you know, me. Uh, but I fell in love with this a British comedian named Frank Skinner. You've never heard of him. If you lived in the UK, you would know who he was. Uh, I mean, the Queen knows who he is. The Archbishop of Canterbury knows who he is. And and he does, I fell in love with this radio show he does um, about 12 years ago. And one of the reasons I fell in love with it was because, I mean, he's a comedian and he just does this very freeform show with two Confederates and he talks about whatever's on his mind. But it's, you know, that interesting British, uniquely British mix uh, of high and low comedy. Um, but every once in a while, it, he would mention a poet. And in particular, I fell in love with the show because anytime he mentions uh, A.E. Hausman, there's a sound effect that goes off. It's an air raid siren. An air raid siren goes off, <laughs> which is a little dark, but also extremely funny. And But I love the fact that it was woven into everything else, right? It's not a show about poetry. He now does a podcast about poetry that is spectacular. I just listened to him pull apart a poem by Caroline Bird in a way that was really incredibly informative. But to me, anyway, the key is, and I'm going to stop now, although I no, I'm going to stop now. Uh, the key of that is is just the you know the poetry should be 
like part of life, not like this special thing. All right. Uh, joining us now, I should tell you who's coming up to Margaret Gibson. I've been a longtime fan of Margaret Gibson. She's the current Poet Laureate uh, of Connecticut. She'll be joining us later. Uh, and we have other guests yet to come. Uh, but uh, we're going to begin with Matthew Zapruder, uh, a professor, poet, uh, whose most recent collection is called Father's Day. He's the author of the book, Why Poetry? His next book will be titled or should be titled, if I have anything to say about it, Thank You for Your Electrons. Um, and uh, he's joining us now. Matthew Zapruder, welcome to the show. Thanks, glad to be here. That is a good title. I'll have to, I'll it's make really good. If you don't use it, I might steal it. It's it, Actually, that line just completely made me burst out laughing uh, <laughs> when I encountered it today. So, um, I don't know, maybe you could react to, to my babbling uh, there in the introduction. I, I, that's sort of my gripe about, I don't know, modern life is that it's, the poetry is like this separate thing where it, I think it should be sort of part of the, the the fabric and the drinking water. Yeah, well, I mean, that's I agree with you. I, and it made me think of, you know, Alex Ross, the um, mm-hmm. the New Yorker critic who writes about classical music. I think in one of one of his books, he says the worst thing that happened in classical music was that it got called classical music, which sort of like, you know, as you said, kind of segregated it from other forms of music and elevated it and made people scared to listen to it. They thought they had to take a graduate course before they did. And I think the same thing has happened in our culture with poetry too. So I I agree with you that it's, it's been for various reasons pushed away from our daily lives. So yeah, I'm with you. Another thing I noticed is that people who think that they don't like poetry, then they hear one. You know, or they encounter one once again serendipitously. Uh, and so I'll give you an example. In 1984, the movie Four Weddings and a Funeral comes out. There is, therefore, a scene at a funeral uh, mm-hmm. and where the uh, lover uh, of the man who has just died uh, is doing a eulogy. Uh, and he segues into this poem. Well, well, we'll play it for you. It's A1, Cat. Go ahead. Perhaps you will forgive me if I turn from my own feelings to the words of another splendid bugger. W.H. Jordan. This is actually what I want to say. Stop all the clocks. Cut off the telephone. Prevent the dog from barking with a juicy bone. Silence the pianos and with muffled drum bring out the coffin. Let the mourners come. Let the aeroplanes circle moaning overhead scribbling on the sky the message he is dead put great bows round the white necks of the public doves let traffic policemen wear black cotton gloves he was my north my south my east and west my working week and my sunday rest my noon my midnight, my talk, my song. I thought that love would last forever. I was wrong. The stars are not wanted now. Put out everyone. Pack up the moon and dismantle the sun. Pour away the ocean and sweep up the wood. For nothing now can ever come to any good. 
All right. We should just be silent for five minutes after that. But unfortunately, I have a radio show. We have to keep talking. Uh, but what ha- one thing that happened was that that particular poem, that Auden poem, got published like all by itself in like 36-point type or something. Uh, and they sold it at cash registers because people really wanted a copy of that poem, whereas what people should have wanted was like a lot more poems. But uh, So I don't want to harp on that. But um, Matthew Zabruder also... I'm struck by the thing he says right before he goes to the poem, right? He says, um, this is actually what I want to say. And it seems to me that's one of the things poetry does, right? It, we have these kind of inchoate feelings that somehow or other poetry can kind of organize for us. Yeah, absolutely. Or at least um, you can you can sort of be with someone as they struggle to say the things that are impossible to ever fully say or ever get to. And you can kind of be with them as they make that effort and that noble effort. I think that's, that's, you know, how I think of poems a lot of the time is not so much necessarily having all the answers, but asking the right questions or, or being in a state of not knowing uh, that's more interesting than my usual state of not knowing. <laughs> I, guess. Um, I mean, it's funny uh, I, that that accent that that actor reads that with is really irresistible. And he, he also calls Auden a splendid bugger. Mm. I think at the beginning, which is great, but, but yeah, the um, it's, it's, I wrote a book called why poetry that you mentioned that, um, and I actually talk about Auden as being the first poet who I fair ever fell in love with completely unexpectedly in high school. I was assigned to write a, uh, a paper, you know, and I picked the person at the top of the list who was Auden. I didn't know anything about him or her <laughs> at the time. And, and so, um, yeah. And I just was entranced by this language and what it was doing and it was so exciting and it just completely snuck up on me and i do think that happens to people and most people you talk to have at least one poem they love um but they still think they don't understand poetry when in fact they do right you were so fortunate that the poetry of roger aardvark had not become popular at that point (laughs) yes he was not he'd already been chosen actually your whole life would have gone differently Uh, (laughs) um that that whole idea that one poem i i put i feel like a poem a good poem is a friend Right. I mean, a good poem isn't something that we read and put aside and 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 never take up again. But it seems to me a, po- a good poem is, is a friend. It's like a thing that you you reach out for at times. Right. I love that you say it's a friend because Auden also famously said uh, that a poem is a kind of pseudo person. Mm-hmm. It's like a, it's like an almost a poem you love is like almost like an individual who you can hang out with and return to and have different experiences with at different times. So that's a great to call it a friend is great. So. One of the things I know that you write and think about is that notion also of poetry kind of, I don't know, refamiliarizing us with something that has become too familiar, the things around us, just in the same way that, you know, a, a vase of flowers painted by Redon, you know, just is like, oh, oh, that's what a flower, that's what flowers could be. Poetry kind of does the same thing, right? Uh, yeah, for sure. With language, I mean, we're surrounded, of course, with language all the time, surrounded with it right now. And it's we need to use it quickly and not to think about every single word and every single thing we run into or we'll be overwhelmed and unable to take the first step in our days. So that is one thing that poetry does. It's so important. It, it defamiliarizes our our relationship to language and it makes us see words and concepts and things anew. Um, and it's that is, you know, if there is a social good that poetry has, and I don't think it has to have one to be important, but if, if there is one it has. I think it's most con- closely connected with that awareness um, about about this material that surrounds us and is so important in language. 
Um, when I saw that, I thought of a poem that I've read previously on, on the air uh, by Charles Simic. Um, I hope I'm saying his name right. Uh, yeah. And uh, it's called Fork. And I'll just, it's quick yeah. enough that I can read it fast. Uh, he's, he writes, this, it's called, keep in mind, it's called Fork. Uh, this strange thing must have crept right out of hell. It resembles a bird's foot worn upon the cannibal's neck. As you hold it in your hand, as you stab with it into a piece of meat, it is possible to imagine the rest of the bird, its head, which, like your fist, is large, bald, beakless, and blind. You know, that's that's what you're talking about, right? kind of destabilizing our relationship with this thing that we, we grab, you know, five times a day. Yeah, perfect poem, right? And, and early Simic, and Simic is, is great. And, and um he, you know, that that's exactly right. It, it makes us see that this thing. And I think that the, the tendency might be, you know, if you were a high school student to sign this poem, that you'd feel you had to sort of torture it into having some big meaning about like violence, or maybe you know that Simic is from Serbia. So then you do some kind of thing about Serbians and the war in the Balkans. But really, I think it's more about, yeah, this this moment of awareness in the everyday you know, that is in itself really, really uh, uh, um, a treasure, you know, to have that kind of awareness. You know, and then maybe one step away from that, from the poem that takes the familiar and kind of destabilizes the word or the idea or the vision for us is, and I'm a big fan of it, but you might not be. I'm a big fan of found poetry, when it's done well anyway, which once again is, well, you should explain what found poetry is. Well, it's what it sounds like. It's it's poetry that's made up of, you know, language that is that ex- already exists in the world in a way that's. I mean, what's so funny about found poetry in a way it's a tautology because all languages already exist in the world. So in a way, all poetry is found poetry. But in this case, it's something that's more like um, visibly sort of like maybe you cut up like a instruction manual or like a, or you use language from street signs or something and you make a poem out of those things or just even pulling something out of its ordinary context and putting it in a different place and calling it a poem. And yeah, found poetry is great. I once wrote, um, I was in Chicago once and I was sitting in a, a restaurant and I was reading both newspapers and realized each of them had a horoscope, which struck me as funny because, <laughs> you know, what if they contradicted? And I just took, a, I just cut up all the lines and I rearranged them and I made a poem out of, out of that. So that, that would be a, a found poem. Yeah. My um, one of my favorite uh, collections of found poetry is uh, the, well. This started, I think, in the Village Voice. The, the, for a long time, the New York Yankees had an announcer, a long time, I think, Hall of Fame shortstop named Phil Rizzuto, who had a kind of weird, discursive way of talking. Uh, and the Village Voice kind of picked up on that, and they would just write down, they would transcribe what he said uh, on a play-by-play. Uh, uh, account of a game uh, and turn it into found poetry. And I, I preserved one of them here. They actually issued a book of them eventually. I think it's called Oh, oh Holy Cow. Um, uh, this is called My Secret. When I'm driving to Yankee Stadium and back, I do it so often. I don't remember passing lights. I don't remember paying tolls. Coming over the bridge, going back over the bridge, I remember. August 19th, 1992, Oakland at New York with Mike Moore pitching to Mel Hall. That's like at the, at the bottom of the poem, they always sort of say what's going on in the game while he's suddenly Beautiful. <laughs> what a beautiful poem. It reminds me, do you know the poet Ron Paget? Oh, yes. Yeah. He's, he's um, he, you know, that has some of the same kind of utter, utter directness and clarity. Mahmoud Darwish, the Palestinian poet, has this great remark, extreme clarity is a mystery. And I think that like Phil Rizzuto, poem is is has the quality of extreme clarity 
yeah. you know, that I love. It's funny you mentioned Ron Padgett because um, about a year during the pandemic, uh, I started having my milk delivered to my house, uh, mm-hmm. like by a, a milk truck, you know, and they bring cheese and butter and stuff too. And whenever I would go out for the first, I don't know, six months, when I, there's a pa- Ron Padgett poem, I think it might be called Bluebird or something, but it begins, you can't expect your, your, the milk to be delivered by the bluebird, <laughs> the blah, 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 blah. I, I can't do the whole thing of it. But I mean, that's another thing, right? You know, poetry... I think if you're a little bit imbued with it, it sort of creates, I don't know, a bunch of stepping stones to walk across your daily life so that, you know, I don't know, you hear something and you think of barbaric yawp or some Whitman phrase, right? All these things wind up being in our heads as kind of a toolbox to embroider the reality we're living with, kind of gifts from the poet. Oh, I love it. I think you should write a book about poetry. <laughs> you know, I, 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 um, I did want to say one thing about the Auden um, is that uh, the original, the Auden that you play that beautiful stop all the clocks. Um, yeah. I think one thing I would like to just put in people's heads. And I think this echoes with something you're saying is that not every poem needs to be about the death of a, a spouse or about, you know, the end of the world or, or some dramatic thing. I think that people sometimes have this idea that when they come to poetry, every experience they have in it should be, sublime and ultimate and about the great dilemmas of human existence sometimes it's about a fork or about having the milk delivered or not delivered or or you know driving or something i mean so many so there's so much pleasure in that you know and i think that that's what i like about the choices you're making of what to share with your 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 audience your listeners because i think it can remind us of that great thing about poetry too yeah, I mean, I don't know. Probably if you made a list, if you figured out what the 50 poems were that Americans were the most likely to recognize, probably somewhere in there would be the William Carlos Williams one mm-hmm. about the uh, the wheelbarrow and the rain and the chicken, right? I mean, the, that's exactly what you're talking about. Although, I think what we, we have to acknowledge is, yes, it's very quotidian, but I think we also have to acknowledge there's something else, right? There's some transcendent meaning embedded in Ron Ron Padgett writing about milk bottles and bluebirds or William Carlos Williams writing about wheelbarrows and rain. Yeah, it's both. That's the great thing. Is it? Is it? It kind of. It's like one of those postcards you turn in and it has two pictures on it. You know, it's like it's 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 the ordinary and it's the sublime and it's they they kind of shimmer and and interact with each other in cool ways and um, that that you know depend on your mood and and where you're at when you're reading it. Well, now comes the time where I get to ask you to read a poem to us. Uh, So I know you've chosen one. You have the stage. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I was going to read one thing, um, but then we were talking about this found poetry, and I thought I would maybe, actually, I would read this poem that was um, composed of of lines from the two horoscopes. Okay, yeah, Um, I'd love that. You might enjoy that. Um, Yeah, and so, and thank you for your conversation. So, like I said, this poem was taken, there were two, I don't remember the exact date, but... um, the horoscopes from the two main papers in the uh, Chicago area and um, cut up and rearranged. So it's all, it's all language from those horoscopes. It's called tonight. You'll be able tonight. You'll be able. It may feel good to go wherever desires lead you into old familiar, destructive awareness going a thousand miles away seems to be keeping up unsettled and anxious signals. They're so microscope be a sleuth. Tiny sparkling under those around you sees you feeling and waiting. Life today is slow-moving co-workers. Respond by giving your profile a new sense of clarity and feel ready to share your outlook, even if they may not be as excited. It makes you good to spread your joy. People, it's harder to be yourself. A series of role-playing opportunities appeases 
showing the authentic, you won't hurt anything. Focus on your lovely find that there are many more things. Tonight, you'll be able to talk to anyone about anything. Make all the loved ones muster up, chat with character, keep alive the conversations. You feel you're getting something someone gives you. The key to a series of coincidences you play matchmaker to. An odd couple, the present you and the future in a big suit, a new haircut, or better than anticipated, funds. A few minor changes to June. Love partners, your lucky numbers are 4, 7, 18, 21, and 32. Ask yourself, what would I do if I knew I could not fail? Oh, that is so great. Matthew Zabruders, is that in one of the collections? Because people are going to want in, that. That's in a book called The Pajamaist, which is an earlier collection of mine. Yeah, it's, it's from, a, from a few books ago. But yeah, that, that's, that's which I actually wrote in Connecticut in, in uh, James Merrill's house in Stonington. So not too far from... From, from from you. That's a great segue because, you know, we are about to segue pretty quickly into Margaret Gibson, who is our current poet laureate. And James Merrill was our first uh, Connecticut state poet laureate. Indeed. All hail Connecticut. Yeah. And uh, I actually had a newspaper column in the Hartford Current at the time, and I campaigned against him uh, to be <laughs> the state poet laureate. And I got a lovely little letter from him. He clearly got the joke. Um, you know, I, 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 we do need to go. But I want to ask you about one more thing very quickly, which is, you know, there's – uh, today, I was spending a lot of time just trying to get myself in the right mood for this show. And so we think of the internet, Internet, I think, as mostly inimical <laughs> to, to, to deep thought and art and, and reflection and all the things that really kind of go into poetry. But it's also a great conveyance for poetry. I was just, I was just watching you know, everything from Talib Kweli and Lauren Hill doing poems at you know, Poetry Duff Jam to I found Helena Bottom Carter reading a roomy poem while sitting barefoot outside some lovely guest house with a cup of tea right next to her foot mm-hmm. and, and on and on. You know, that you could just there's so much of it there, and, and it actually is a great way to put stuff uh, up. Maybe we need to think of even more creative ways that YouTube and, and other models can be used to deliver poetry to people. Yeah, I think the I, I think the internet's been pretty great for poetry. I got to say, um, and you because in the very beginning you mentioned uh, you used the word segregated to to talk about you know, and I think you were using it metaphorically to talk about how poetry's taken away from our everyday life. But of course, in a more literal sense, I mean, poetry has been very white for a long time. And I think the internet has opened up this massive area of people to, to contribute and share and put things forward. And we know about so there's so many more avenues for people to speak and to share. And, and the poetry, contemporary American poetry has gotten so much more interesting and better over the past five to 10 years because of the internet and the ability to share things and, and the lack of the, the, the lowering of gates you know, so yeah, I, I I think it's been I think it's been a good for 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 the sharing of poetry for sure. This might be a cheap excuse for me too. Uh, I this morning I was thinking about doing the show when I was going for a walk with my dog Declan, uh, and I I'm not a poet. I don't write poetry or anything like that. But I I said to Declan, "Do you have any poems?" Uh, <laughs> and, and so what came out, and it's up on the internet, right? It's up on Facebook right now. It has 160 likes uh, in the last two and a half hours. Kind of in the style of Charles Simic, he gave me a poem called Stick. Oh. Uh, it's called Stick by Declan the Dog. Uh, I'll read it very quickly. This is not the one from yesterday or the day before. Beyond that, are, well, I, <clears throat> I, have to, I have to begin again. Uh, Declan would be so upset. <laughs> this is not the one from yesterday or the day before. Beyond that are mere shadows, 
ragged lines breaking the blue of the sky as sticks are thrown and thrown and thrown and retrieved. I give this one the imprint of my teeth, then lift my head to smell what's in the April wind as it combs the grass on the hill. So I, I think people ought to ask their dogs if they've written any poems. You know? Bad news, Colin. You're a poet. I got I got terrible news for you. You're stuck. <laughs> no, no, I don't think so. It's a one-off. It's a dog. A dog wrote that poem. All right, yeah. Matthew Zapruder, so great to talk to you. Uh, all of these, all of this is going to be very attractive to people, but I, I predict a rush, maybe starting with me on the pajamist, because I, okay. I, I want to have that poem between covers. All right, we're going to take a break. We're going to come back. We will talk to Margaret Gibson then. The revolution will not show you pictures of Nixon blowing a bugle and leading a charge by John Mitchell, General Abrams, and Spiro Agnew to eat hog moths confiscated from a Harlem sanctuary. The revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be brought to you by the shape of a war theater and will not star Natalie Woods and Steve McQueen or Bullwinkle and Julia. The revolution will not give your mouth sex appeal. The revolution will not get rid of the nub. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go Team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. We're back. Uh, I make no secret of the fact that I am a Margaret Gibson fanboy uh, and have been for a long time. Margaret Gibson is the Poet Laureate of Connecticut. Uh, her most recent collection is The Glass Globe, the third book in a trilogy that began with Broken Cup and includes Not Hearing the Wood Thrush. Um, I was listening to our sister show, Where We Live, on its re, uh, re, re rebroadcast in, at night, one dark night not too long ago at 8 o'clock driving down a dark road, and Margaret was there on there reading this incredibly arresting uh, poem. I had to pull over uh, just to sort of sit there and, and let it sink in. So, uh, Margaret Gibson, very happy to have you back with us. Thank you, Colin. It's good to be here. So, um, I, I think you are maybe the seventh uh, poet laureate, uh, state poet laureate of Connecticut, starting, as we said, with James Merrill. So, what's that job like? What do you wind up doing as the, our state poet laureate? Uh, well, um, it's it's an interesting question. Um, I, I became Poet Laureate exactly a year before uh, we all went into seclusion because of COVID. Um, it's a position that's part honorary, but they also, I think, want you to um, support the poetry community in, um, in Connecticut, but there's no funding. Mm. Um, so that's something I'd like to return to a little bit later. Um, you have a choice then of sitting next to your ego and waiting for invitations to come in for you personally, or you can do what I decided to do is to 
take as my social focus while I was poet laureate, um, global climate crisis, um, uh, the human relationship to the natural world, and um, really situating us uh, in where we are in this time um, of global climate crisis. I was really interested in your saying that poetry should be more ambient, more interwoven, and not segregated. You could say the same thing about the natural world or what I like to call the living world. Until COVID, people, I mean, people have always taken walks and there are nature nuts and tree huggers and all of that. But there was a huge boom of people going out into land trusts and natural places and parks and reacquainting themselves with the natural world. Most of the time, we think we're separate from it. I taught a class at UConn years ago um, in poetry and nature. And the first day of class, I asked the students to define nature and 90% of them wrote a, ver a version of this, that which is not me, that which is separate, that which is not human. Hmm. So in a way to uphold the role and the voice of poetry in our daily and living lives, um, is also um, not too far from wanting to say poetry. Oh, she might have cut out here. Uh, let's check into that, see if we have a, um, we may have a Zoom problem. Uh, and so we'll get Margaret Gibson back. Uh, while that's happening, uh, I can do a couple of things. First of all, I just wanted to remark upon, I'm hoping she can come back and read the poem Because the Earth, uh, which is there. I think we have her. Are you back? I'm back. Okay, good. You disappeared and it was terrifying. Um, but now you're back. I just wanted to say also, as you were talking, I was thinking yesterday's show was about Thoreau. And I was thinking a lot yesterday about nature, uh, which for the transcendentalists was kind of nature with a capital N. And, and since they didn't really want there to be any other human intermediary between themselves and the divine, it was nature, right? Nature was the was the way the thing you looked at and dwelled with in order to kind of unite yourself with the oversoul or the universe that seems to be maybe getting lost at least for your students um i think so um but i think um you know i i think it's not just a question of being out in nature it's being out it's actually a question of presence and of being present to whatever moment you're in, because the living world doesn't go somewhere else. It's where we are. Um, there's this immense interconnectedness that um, actually is, uh, is the reality of our lives in nature. Whether you think of nature as, or the living world as a step stepping stone to something else may depend on, on who you are and your, um, but, I think certainly that there are multivalent valent energies and um, in this world that not everything is apparent or on YouTube or um, at the grocery store. There are things that we can reach for and we have the senses and the intelligence and the heart for, but we have to take those times to be silent and to really reach far into the present moment and discover that in it is also the past and the future. There's a Zen teacher that says, ask yourself now if there is anything left out of this moment, mm. anything. Mm. So that's a, huge, that's a huge range, 
but it brings it in close to where you are and your awareness and this personal moment. Um, it's pretty exciting. It is. Whether you're looking at a fork with Charlie Simic <laughs> or whether you're taking a walk um, with Thoreau or raising beans or whatever you're doing, um, the present moment is connected to everything else. Well, let's take that idea and use it to start planting dahlias. Uh, I'd like you to read Because of the Earth. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't catch all of that. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I said we should take that idea and use it to begin planting dahlias. Uh, so I'd like I'd like you to read uh, your poem, Because the Earth. Okay, thank you. Um, this comes this poem comes from a book um, <laughs> which does exactly what Matthew Zapruder said. Not every poem has to do. Um, this is a poem um, that weaves personal bereavement following the death of my late husband um, till 11, after 11 years of Alzheimer's. Um, so there's personal bereavement, but these poems are woven in with poems of environmental grief, um, looking at the science and also um, the existential position that we're in in global climate crisis. And this poem, Because the Earth, um, is in that book. The glass globe. Because the earth, because the earth as we know it will end, I plant dahlias. And because dahlias will fade in late fall, I dig up their roots to make a potion that dyes my scarf of white silk, the color of the earth. And because the scarf will wear out and will shred, I untie it from around my neck, off it flies into the wind with the prayer flags. And because my neck will someday not be needed to hold up my head, I take down a recipe for stock, good bone broth. And because my head takes stock of each leaf as it settles onto the dark shining surface of the pond, I reach for an invisible spool of red cord not the cord and begin mending the net we've torn. This net made of air and ocean, made of sun and soil. At junctures woven into this net are jewels whose each facet reflects star groves and owls, minnows and eelgrass, meadowlarks, milkweed and monarchs. So that each apparently single thing exists in the light of everything else. And because the net also trembles as it senses the glacial erratic in any heart that just sits there and sits there and sits there, a mute lament. And because each of us has the power to turn harm into healing and because the earth as we know it will end just now. I plant dahlias. That, Margaret, is just wonderful. And, of course, it kind of takes us back uh, to the Zen koan, particularly those jewels whose each facet reflects star groves and owls, minnows and eelgrass, uh, that notion that each apparently single thing exists in the light of everything else. That kind of gets us back to that try to imagine something left out uh, of the present moment. Well, it, it may be one of the, one of the things that this poem is doing is it's circular. It begins with, you know, wanting to plant dahlias and uh, ends that way. And in the process, every 
um, stanza, you know, you dig up the roots to make your scarf the color of white silk. I mean, everything connects to the next stanza. stanza. The images, the poem is actually weaving a net Mm. so that you don't, I mean, even if you're not familiar with the Hindu image of the net of Indra, which is a net that at every intersection, it says there are jewels that reflect everything else. It gets you into that notion that um, the interconnections of the earth are actually greater than the sensory apparatus we have as organisms, as human beings can, uh, can apprehend. We can't really take it all in, but we can do our best to live in such a way that we are interconnected like that net, or that we take into consideration as even the roots of an oak tree does. You know, it's, it's, it's amazing what we're finding out that um, the roots of trees are sent roots sensitive to the welfare of neighboring trees, that they send each other chemical messages. There are these, we didn't know that before, you know, recently. There are lots of stuff we don't know, but it all tends to go toward the notion of interconnectedness interdependence and beauty. And I think that those things um, are huge concerns of poetry and of language. Yeah, I the I noticed the 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 net in particular. I started to notice it more uh, on first reading when you do that really interesting play on the two meanings of take stock. Um, uh, I started well, I started, started to think, oh, this is all kind of connecting together in a very interesting way. So um, last thing I want to talk about, we're going to run out of time here, but um, there's I, today in a very short period of time, I've had the, the two very different pleasures, I think, of reading your poem with my own eyes and then listening to you read it. And, and there's something just intrinsic to poetry about listening to the poet when possible. Can you talk about the importance of that? Um, I think so. Um, you know, it, uh, my mind leaps immediately back to good old William Wordsworth, who said that a poem is one, he said man, but he should have said person, one person speaking to another. And I think that sometimes we forget that a poem is a voice, a poem is a presence. And if you, it, and that a poem is not completed until it's heard by a listener. So actually, the listener to a poem or the reader of the poem um, is very important because that person's imagination and receptivity helps to complete what the poet what the poet um, gives us in the poem. Um, listening is important. Speaking in everyday language in images that are plain and clear, trying to find language that's vivid and adequate to the mysteries and the things we can't see. Uh, poems of everyday life that just celebrate what it's like to be here and to enjoy our lives, but also poems that allow us um, to enter those spaces we don't like to go. I just gave a reading yesterday at Avon and I read a poem called Washing the Body, which is about washing the body of my late husband after just after he had died. Um, I also read a poem about this is weird, washing the body of the earth, um, looking way ahead to where we don't want to go to, which is the death of the earth as we know it. Um, and as I, after I read those poems, um, 
a woman came up to me, someone from the audience and said, I don't know whether you could see, she was actually in the first row. I don't know whether you could see, but I had tears in my eyes. It was wonderful to hear you read the poems. I don't know how to read them that way, but it releases the feeling. I think the use of poetry is language is in poetry is the most intimate and surprising and connective that we've got. Um, and so I think that the more poets read poems to people, the more people will relax and say, yeah, I get it. This is not a foreign language. I'm not looking for symbol systems. I'm not, you know, I, I, I can do this. I can listen and maybe I can even write my own poem. How about that? How about that? Margaret Gibson, we have to stop. I don't want to, but Margaret Gibson is the Poet Laureate of Connecticut. Her most recent collection is The Glass Globe, uh, the third book in a trilogy. Uh, And thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you, Colin. All right, we'll take a break. We have one more poet we want you to meet. Sometimes even on a subway train How am I to ever learn about the woodlands And the falling leaves of autumn And such things sublime When I must spend all my time just trucking along All right, time to say some quick thank yous. One of them is to Kat Pastor. She's the technical technical producer running the board today. Uh, Also to Lily Tyson, senior producer of The Colin McEnroe Show and producer of this episode. Uh, And we are going to finish with Yin Yi, uh, a poet uh, whose latest collection is Dream of the Divided Field, the writer of the advice column, The Reading for Creative Writers. Uh, And I'm doing this from memory. Uh, The winner, I think in 2018, of the Yale Series for Younger Poets. I think I got the name of that work correctly uh, for uh, for a first book. So, first of all, welcome to our conversation. And we are going to see, he might be, uh, we'll see whether Yin Yi is maybe muted on, uh, on Zoom, uh, which is a disease of the present moment. So, um, let's see. Uh, uh, so, see if we can reach him. While that's happening, I might be able to retrieve uh, in order to keep you entertained. Um, you know, that whole sort of idea, anyway, uh, of the poem as a friend, um, the whole idea as a po- of a poem is sort of something that we reach out for uh, at certain moments. Um, and and I, I loved Matthew Zapruder's statement that everybody has a favorite poem. Um, and mine, if there is one, is by Neruda. Uh, it's an obscure Neruda poem called Let's Wait, uh, and I've turned to it, I don't know, so many times here uh, over the course of what is now turning into <laughs> to be a longish life. So I'll just quickly read it to you and we'll try to figure out uh, what's happening with the connection right now. Um, Other days still to come are rising like bread or waiting like chairs or a pharmacopoeia or merchandise, a factory of days in the making. Artisans of the soul are building and weighing and preparing days bitter or precious that will knock at your door in due time. To award you an orange or murder you in cold blood where you stand. 
that's probably <laughs> it's probably a bad example of a favorite poem, except that there is something about the kind of you know arbitrary crossroads full nature of life that's so perfectly embedded there. Uh, so let's see how we're doing with the connection. Uh, oh, we're working at we're redoing the connection. Uh, we're trying to make a connection with Yan Yi, a poet whose latest collection is Dream uh, of the Divided Field and the writer of the advice column, The Reading for Creative Writers. I think we may have Yan Yi now on our connection. Hi, are you there? <laughs> we have a doomed Zoom connection. We're going to keep trying here. Well, we're going to uh, try one more time. Yin Yi, can you hear me? Possibly yes, but not able to. So, you know, while that's happening, fortunately, <laughs> fortunately, we have a topic that I sort of care passionately about. And one, one of the, oh, I think, I, uh, there, there you are. Oh, good. Oh, my gosh. I'm so wow. excited. Okay. I, I'm so sorry about that. That's... I have a nice mic here and it kind of had a technical glitch or something. I don't know. Well, but I mean, I that's that could point us towards a po- I mean, one of the things that I was asking Matthew Zapruder about earlier is kind of the effect of digital existence uh, on oh, poetry. Yeah. And it has its ups and its downs, but there's sort of a way in which so much of ourselves is poured into and stored in this kind of enormous cloud, this huge auxiliary brain that we have. And you're young enough to, you've sort of lived in this rainforest probably pretty much your entire <laughs> life, right? Yeah, down to, to dial-up and Neopets being one of the formative experiences of my youth, definitely. So as a young person choosing a life, you know, you have an opportunity probably to choose many things. Um, and there probably are members of your family saying, poet, really? This is what you're <laughs> going to do? Are you sure about that? Uh, so talk about you know, how do you choose this life for yourself? Or, or is it not even really a choice? It's a really difficult choice, honestly. Um, I So I was a software engineer for quite a few years. Um, I still often think about going back to engineering. Um, I think that the, the industry and the, the ways that we work with cultural capital have some problematic things attached to it. So there's obviously exploitation and other things that kind of get mixed into it. Um, so there are the, just those economic realities that I think are very real for choosing a life as a writer. Um, but on a spiritual level, it's it was it was always a kind of a no question thing. Um, I've always been a writer. I've always been kind of interested in language. Um, as a as a young person, I was always writing stories, and and then eventually I found poetry. Um, so it's it's just always been part of my life. I'm going to ask you to read uh, one of your poems because we lost a little bit of time there. It might be a good idea to read the shorter one uh, yeah. that we have, which is Obad. Go ahead. Okay. Um, so. Because of all of the technical stuff, I lost where all the where I had the page <laughs> and everything too, which is life. That that is life. Okay, Obad. I woke up with so much love for you. It doesn't matter where I am. I am making eggs. The sun is warming my just shaved head, like your hand when sometimes it rests there. That's really, really beautiful. It also it made me think of Richard Wilbur. Is this in any way kind of uh, his? You know, he has a poem called "A Late Obad." Uh, was it? In, was that an influence at all? No, it wasn't. Um, Obads are kind of you know they're they're part of the tradition of writing of, mm-hmm. of poetry. So um, I was writing a lot of morning poems, a lot of morning love poems, and um, so I ended up with uh, quite a few Obads in this in this latest book of mine. Um, and this is the one that that. And it's the last Obad in the book. 
So I was reading a piece a, a little bit from your um, the kind of advice thing that you do, the reading, and mm-hmm. and and this is like a five hour conversation, and we got like three or four minutes to talk about it. But you, condensation, that's what poetry is all about. True, um, <laughs> but you talk about sort of the way that one of the reasons that you maybe write poetry is because it, it it's a response to things that are already in your head. You talk about. The, almost kind of the voices of your uh, abusers, those monsters in shadows that are still mm-hmm. out to get you, you're right. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that because I think we all, you know, no matter what, how our lives have gone, do have some version of those voices that tell these stories over and over to us. Yeah, that's a really great question. I'm, I'm going to guess the, the one that you read was the recent one about why I write. Yes. Um, I was asking, someone asked me about it and um, for me, being able to articulate for myself, to tell the story for myself of what's happened to me in my life has been incredibly powerful um, because there are, you know, voices in my mind, um, in, in my heart, I would say, growing up of, of um, about who I was supposed to be, what I was supposed to do, or, or how I, I was supposed to um, uh, exist or project into the future in the world. And part of what's been so radical or important for me with poetry has been the exercise in freedom of freedom of of what it means for me and what in, in terms of what I desire and what I want. And um I I feel like I found in poetry a way to not not wait to be spoken to, but to to be the one who kind of speaks first and to speak first to myself, to affirm that I exist. Is is the preparation for writing a poem a kind of clearing out of those, some of those voices, uh, getting rid of them enough so that you can choose your your own words? You can write about those days when I stank of sun and lilacs, those days of mm. candlelit reading. Uh, you know, to get your own words, maybe you have to get rid of everybody else's words. Um. Yes and no. I I have a friend who who used to say and probably still says that language is a social thing. Um. Everything. I think earlier in the program you were talking about um, how found all poetry is kind of found. I think Matthew was saying yeah. that, and um, I think that's very true. Of like part of part of what I'm doing when I sit down to write a poem is not necessarily to eradicate anyone or any voice from my mind, but to respond to it and to ask myself: Is this what I believe too? Is this how I want to tell my story? Um, and that's been incredibly useful because. Um, in in actuality, when I write, I'm I'm in community with other people. I am writing alone in solitude, but um, I'm also kind of in conversation with those who do understand me and do value me. And um, those are the people who those those voices I are the ones I think about when I when I sit down to write. And and it is a conversation to which I am contributing my own my my own. Um, viewpoint or outlook. That, or, that's a yeah, perfect answer. To, that's a perfect answer to that question. It was just what I was wondering. Yin Yi, unfortunately, we have to stop. Now, a poet whose latest collection is Dream of the Divided Field and the writer of the advice column, The Reading for Creative Writers. Up till now, there's always been missing 